Our mindset is one of the biggest determiners of our success and is perhaps the biggest determiner of whether or not we achieve our dreams and ambitions. I'm Sarah Moore. And I'm Wayne Alexander. And this is Ambition Unleashed. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to explore a different mindset shift to consider making if you want to identify and achieve your biggest, boldest, most breakthrough ambitions. We'll also hear from thought leaders who are experts in or from extraordinary individuals who have lived experience of making this shift in their life, leadership or work. Together we'll explore a conventional way we as humans find ourselves thinking and introduce and invite you to think in a more unconventional way, what we call breakthrough thinking. Sharing some of the insights we've had over the many years we've been coaching and consulting with some of the world's most extraordinary leaders at many of the world's biggest companies. We'll give you the fundamental aha moments you need to make you more innovative, more transformational and more capable of delivering breakthroughs. And ultimately smash any ceilings that only the way in which we think can put in our way. In this episode of Ambition Unleashed, we're going to explore why endlessly cultivating curiosity in yourself and if you are a leader of people in your teams is critical to unleash ambition and be successful in bringing to life a seemingly impossible future, idea or innovation you may be dreaming of creating. Many people listening may have come across American psychologist Carol Dweck's best-selling leadership book, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, in which she popularised the notion of honing what's called a growth mindset. And if you haven't read this book, it's a must-read, and we'll leave a link in the show notes. Yeah, Carol Dweck's central premise is that the constant practice of flexible, adaptable thinking, relishing challenges as learning opportunities, and being always curious lie at the heart of vibrant and effective leadership in all walks of life. And we couldn't agree more. And so do many of our clients in Wayne and I's day job, consulting with leaders around the world. But paradoxically, the moment having a growth mindset becomes a goal in itself, its very power is undermined. Because a growth mindset is not a destination, but a journey. If it becomes the way things are done here, in organisations, or a requirement or preferred characteristic, it is in danger of becoming actually a fixed attitude, the antithesis of growth. So in this week's episode, we're going to look at the breakthrough thinking that successful leaders use to experiment, explore and commit to impossible goals and to constantly refresh a growth mindset. And crucially, we'll explore the common knowledge traps that can constrain ambitious people and leaders and curtail breakthrough achievements. And in some ways, what you know as a leader at work or in life has less significance. What you are willing to learn has everything. And we're delighted to be joined later by Beatrice Baigua, a female chief executive in the male-dominated wholesale energy sector, who has made this belief core to her leadership philosophy to deliver phenomenally successful business turnarounds. I hope a universal experience for anyone listening is that at some point you've sat around a campfire with friends or family and talked long into the night or as you heard the crackles of the wood igniting, spoke and met with strangers, but because there is something so levelling and inclusive about a campfire, that under the stars you chatted deeply, warmed by the fire and perhaps with a beer or hot chocolate in hand. And with a campfire, it's a brilliant picture of collaboration. Everyone goes to collect sticks and firewood and brings it back to the collective and creates something bigger than was possible by themselves. And community and conversation is created as a result. So imagine you're sitting there now, around this fire. Would you be thinking, I hope everyone's noticed my stick? 
it's a really good stick. <laughs> or would you be saying, has everyone noticed my stick, please? Is that my one or is that your one, Sarah? Hang on, which one's burning brighter? Who brought that stick? Why is everyone looking at that stick and not my stick? <laughs> well, I think my stick was critical in the success of this campfire, and I knew that would be the case because I've always used sticks like this wherever I've worked before. And in fact, my stick would probably have been enough. We didn't need all the others. <laughs> Why is it when we ask those questions about a campfire, it's funny or absurd or nonsensical, but when it comes to working with others and collaboration and the great exchange of ideas that every day has to be, we can easily fall into the conventional thinking of wanting my stick to be the stick, my ideas, my knowledge, my ways to be the way. Such a good analogy, Wayne. Our assertion is that a powerful context for personal leadership and a necessary context for leading others is to be the first to say, I don't know, and let's find out the answer. Why? Because from a breakthrough perspective, knowing is not just accruing more and more information. No. Real learning is when you can produce a result you were unable to achieve before, a breakthrough, which is always in the territory of discovery and curiosity, which requires a very different kind of mindset than most of us grew up with. Most of us grew up in the education system where there was a right and a wrong answer. Can you remember putting your hand up and how high you tried to reach, practically dislocating your shoulder if you were confident you had the answer, praying the teacher would pick you, me, 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 or how small you'd shrink if you didn't know the answer, please don't let the teacher ask me. That extends into higher or further education in many disciplines where you need to know the right answer. I remember being at theological college and a classmate who was a medical doctor said how unprepared they were for debating open-ended theological ideas because they said medicine had drilled them into being able to know an awful lot, but not, they said, the muscles to explore ideas. And then beyond education, we move into many jobs and roles that have a well-established right versus wrong skill, which is then noticed and rewarded by promotion and bonus. All this is to say that the knower mindset is well established from a very early age. But to operate from or find safety only in a knower mindset means that you'll only set sail in familiar territory where you can show up to others as a knower. But what you're really doing is protecting yourself and your ego so you don't look or feel caught out. Which is completely understandable given the route many of us have travelled through our lives or careers. But in this episode, we want to create a powerful new context for learning so that there is an alteration in who we are being to create results we didn't think were possible, which comes with an internal freedom that not knowing is part of the game and is okay. And the game of I need to be seen to know the answer has been replaced with a new freedom and ability to create with others the answer that maybe just doesn't exist yet. Being a curious learner is a journey, not a destination. One of the risks of the passion and energy around growth mindset today in leadership books is that it becomes a new dogma and a judgment we have to use against others. They need a growth mindset, like me. But of course, on this mindset shift, like many of the shifts, as soon as we speak like we've arrived, the game is up and we've been hooked again by our conventional thinking. Stephen Hawking said, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. 
This is the great irony and danger of the limits of the knower mindset. Those things we are being so right about are actually getting in the way of possibility and discovery. What we'll hear in this episode is that the speed and complexity of life requires a posture of learning and that far from reducing credibility as a leader, it is a muscle that is required so that you create culture and learning around you and that you can grow stronger, more influential and more able to adapt to change. A quote I love that gets to the the real heart of this is the Greek philosopher Plutarch, Mm. who said, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. And our guest this week lives this personally and has led this publicly in an industry of unbelievable change where what we know today might be outdated tomorrow. And so a few weeks ago, we chatted to Beatrice Baigwa, former CEO of EDF Energy's customers division, where she delivered an extraordinary business turnaround and current CEO of EDF Trading a wholesale energy specialist. And we began by asking her to tell us a bit about the aha moments she's had that have got her to where she is today. So Beatrice, brilliant to have you with us today in this conversation about Noah to Learner. I guess first an introduction with an emphasis on, you know, what's going on right now in the industry for you. And, you know, tell us a bit about your background, perhaps with a focus on one or two key aha moments that you've had along the way from a leadership point of view. So I've been uh, working for the EDF group for over 25 years. The majority of my time has been spent in the UK. And uh, I, I guess the, my, my first job in the UK was four or five years into my, my career at TDF, and uh, I fell in love with the country. And I also fell in love with the challenge, probably, of um, uh, understanding two cultures and really navigating uh, the, the first the complexity of a new culture for me and being able to bridge the gap between this culture and the culture of the mother company. So I would say that that was certainly a defining moment in my career, because from that point onwards, I nearly exclusively spent my time in the UK or working for a UK-based entity of the group. And maybe a second defining moment, I would say, was um, uh, my job just before this one, where I um, headed the customers business of EDF in the UK, in charge of the domestic and commercial and industrial customers of EDF. And it was a business unit that was in great need of a change. And with the management team, we embarked into a great adventure of uh, the great adventure of shifting the culture, the culture of the, the division and the, the, the business unit. It was an exercise that took us the best part of six years. And that um, actually culminated in the, the business uh, starting from being the, maybe the worst in the industry, the worst of the large suppliers in the industry to being the best. So full of learnings and <laughs> surprises on, on the way. What you've just said, you've talked about culture being some of those most prominent things for you at the time, you know, starting with the two cultures coming together. Can you say a bit about why that leaps off the page to you? It obviously hit you then how important culture is and how it can get in the way. Can you say any more about that? My background is very technical. I graduated in a very technical uh, university in France, highly focused on math, physics, uh, hard sciences. And that's really how I started my career. 
in EDF. And as I progressed, I got interested in management, but I didn't really know what management was. It's very intangible uh, what it is and how you learn. So you learn by experience. And, and I, I guess my, my last experience uh, in the customer's business, or since that, that this last experience, I've understood what it is to be a leader. And maybe I have also learned so many things that now, maybe only now, I feel equipped <laughs> to manage uh, large business units and steer them. And, 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 and I've been able to identify exactly uh, probably what, what was the object of my quest. And I guess those insights are needed now more than ever, Beatrice. And at the time of recording, at the beginning of 2022 here, the global energy markets are being hugely disrupted by so many factors and geopolitics. And I guess nothing in our history in some ways has prepared us for this. Um, But not everyone listening to this podcast will be experts in the energy market. So could you give us a sense of what it's like to be in the industry at this time and, and the daily complexities that, you, that you're managing. Yes. So, so the transformation that is uh, happening in the energy industry is also happening in many, many other industries. There is a, a very strong drive towards decarbonization for most developed uh, economies. We use a lot more renewable energy, but it also changes the, the way energy is consumed. And it changes the way energy is consumed because uh, where maybe 10 years ago or five to 10 years ago, a customer was maybe just expecting a bill from their energy supplier. Today, they may have a solar panel on their roof. They may have a smart meter. They may have an electric car for some of them. And they want to be in control. And and this sense and this appetite to be in control is also driven by the development of digital technologies that empowers the customers. Digital technologies have also another effect, is that they blur the boundaries between sectors. Today, uh, an energy uh, customer can have an experience, a retail experience in something that has nothing to do with energy, and will have the same expectation from their energy provider. So these boundaries are, are blurred, and the energy sector, like many other sectors, has to learn to work with others. And and probably the energy sector was a sector of experts, people who it's very technical, it's very complex, and this complexity is uh, unchanged. But there is another layer of complexity that is added by uh, this blurring uh, of, of boundaries with other sectors. And just understanding the energy sector is probably not sufficient anymore. When you sense, and when we were speaking earlier, Beatrice, you were talking about almost daily there's new situations to, to manage, new situations to lead in. What kind of leadership is required uh, in this huge disruption that's currently happening and the, the change that's happening in the energy sector and other sectors? So, so t- today my job is uh, more in the wholesale market rather than customer facing. But I would say that we are also incurring huge disruption in this market. I've been in the job two years and I've already been through four events that would have been deemed completely black, black swan events two years ago. Wow. So the pandemic, for the same for everybody, but we've had, we've had also a crisis in the wholesale energy markets, markets, at least three crises in less than a year. And this is completely changing the way the markets work at the moment. So, so I would say it's, and, and this is to a degree associated with the energy transition because some of these disruptions come from the fact that gas is becoming more and more important as part of the, as part of the energy transition and the dependency of Europe on gas and especially Russian gas 
class has uh, also inc increased or the importance of this dependency has been highlighted by the, the recent events. So, so what sort of leadership is, is requested, required more generally in, in such disrupted environments is probably leadership in, in which you're able to question what you know. Uh, and we are seeing it in trading. We saw it in, in retail when in my previous job. We, we, we realized that what we know is not our knowledge, is not sufficient to respond to the situation and to provide adequate responses to, to the situation. So, so we, we need to provide a steer to people that encourages them to maybe leave their comfort zone and uh, try new things or really experiment maybe new solutions that maybe they had not uh, thought about before. And Beatrice, how, how has this challenged you personally? You know, how does it challenge you or the individual and the leaders around you? How do you see them being challenged out of this sort of expert, steady state of, you know, knowing and knowledge and all, all of that that you describe? I think, I think it's, it's challenging them because um, what I believe is that my generation, at least we've, we've been promoted in our, in our jobs because we know what we are doing. We have a track record of uh, delivering results in, in specific areas where, where we are the, the knowledgeable people. Uh, and then suddenly you find yourself in an environment where you realize that you don't know everything. And, and you have to overcome that. You have to be able to reinvent yourself because your knowledge is not legacy. Your knowledge is not useless. It's still useful. But we, you need to repurpose this knowledge and you need to find a way to utilize it in a productive manner. And it's not the way it was used before. You know, it, it's, it's, we, before we were probably more working in silos. And in a silo, usually what you have is uh, quite often is like-minded people and, and silos are very good for optimizing an existing process, getting the most out of it. And, but that's not what this is. This is still required in part of the business. But in other parts of the business, you need to really open up the, the thinking and, and invite or encourage a, a lot more creativity. So, so I think what, what I've, I've found in my experience is that as a leader, you need to be able to flex between the two. It's not just, that, uh, it's not just all about innovation, creativity, different ways of thinking. It's really about flexing your, your leadership style, flexing your, your ability to interact with very different people that, that is required as a leader. And in the highly regulated industry that you're in and others that, that we work in, you know, emphasizes that, I think, that you, you can't completely leave those very focused, disciplined muscles that, that you have. So, you know, in terms of how it challenges you as a leader, I can hear the vulnerability in that to be able to actually admit or say for the first time, you've done it many times, you know, I don't, I don't have the answers here. And I know Beatrice, when we've worked together before in your previous role, you talked about, you know, not having the answers, but organizing the questions and, and focusing the organization on the how versus the what. You know, so the vision being not less important, but less prescribed because we can't predict. Perhaps you'd say a little bit about that sort of thinking and that strategy and, and what you created, because I think that does bring alive this knower to learner culture that you created, as well as 
individual leadership. So, so yes, in, in that in that kind of uh, environment, it's it's absolutely critical to be able to say that you don't know. And my experience of that has been that when you say you don't know to your people, when they ask a question in, in Q&A and you say you don't know, far from generating doubt in you, this, in, in my view, has uh, many times generated a sense of relief uh, from, from the people who could see that they, they could see that themselves they didn't know, but they felt compelled to say that they knew. <laughs> suddenly they had somebody telling them, somebody in the position of management and the senior leadership telling them, I don't know. And, and the minute you say that, it creates possibilities in the organization. For me, it was quite natural to do that. I didn't have too much of a problem. What I would say, maybe the challenge, as I highlighted earlier, is, is the ability to go from that to sometimes the need to be assertive and lead and, and decide. So you need to create the space to, for the questioning to take place, for people also to not feel, you know, when you become a senior leader, people uh, tell you what uh, they think you want to hear. And that's horrible because <laughs> you don't get to hear what's going on. You don't get to hear the crazy ideas that you need to feed your, 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 yourself and your thinking. So, so you need to create that safe space where you have, there is trust and people can really say what they think. But at the same time also, at times you also need to be quite assertive and say, we're going in this direction and that's a decision and without closing the questioning. So it's really about creating that, that environment where you can, where, where both can uh, coexist. I love how you've just described that, Beatrice, that you know, many of us will think that we need to lead by example, by knowing. And if we admit that we don't know, it's somehow a loss of credibility. But I love the way you've just turned that on its head by we lead by example, by not knowing. And then that creates a whole different inquisitive, curious environment. Beatrice, what would you say inhibits someone or a leader really stepping into that that shift from, from knowing to learning, some of those inhibitors that stop us? I can see probably two that spring to my mind. The, the first one sometimes is a lack of confidence, of self-confidence, where uh, people may hang on to what they know because they don't want to drop that in fear that they're not going to be able to transition into something else. So the, the lack of self-confidence or maybe lack of a trusted space where they can feel confident, for sure. The second one is egos. Senior leaders sometimes or often, I don't know, can have, you know, big egos. And egos clearly go in the way of effectiveness because you spend time, you know, feeding the egos instead of thinking and debating and creating. So clearly, again, the, from my experience, is that the, the teams that work really, really well and that are, that are agile and fast-moving, they have left their egos behind because otherwise you waste a lot of time. You, you end up wasting a lot of time feeding the egos and not tackling the, the issues. So, so egos, yes, for sure. And have you ever come across somebody that you know, has been unable to make that shift or unable to drop their ego? and Or have you coached anybody around that, this topic? I haven't coached anybody, uh, but I've had, you know, people uh, probably leaving the team uh, because they could see that that wasn't, there was not going to be much time devoted to massaging their ego. <laughs> so that, that's happened for sure. 
it has happened. Well, when, when you set the direction clearly, people vote with their feet. I was speaking to a leader a couple of weeks ago who, uh, over the course of the last year, they were asked to go and lead in an area where they had no background knowledge. And they have been surprised that it's been some of the best impact that they've ever had. And it was an uncomfortable shift. Why do you think that was? Why do you think, what would you assert? Why was that some of the best impact that they had? I think, I think that's because you, you, it's much, much easier to say you don't know when you really don't know. <laughs> and and also, also because you, you, when, when you know technically the area you, you, you're operating in, you, it's, it's difficult. I mean, for everybody, it's difficult to depart from your convictions, from what you've been taught, what has worked in the past as well. It's, it's quite difficult to depart from that. And, and I guess if you arrive in, in, a, in an area where you really don't know anything, that, that you start with really a blank sheet of paper. So I, I guess that's why he found it actually had a nice surprise because it was faci- actually this, this shift for, was facilitated by the fact that he had to learn anyway. <laughs> so uh, I would say that that's the reason. I mean, we, we, are, uh, we said it earlier, but we, we leaders uh, at, at our level have been promoted because we've, we've been able to reassure our management that we knew what we were doing. And, and so we need to reassure them still that we know what we are, we were do- we are doing, but, but with some space for exploration and discovery, if you, if you navigate such a complex environment and you think you know, what is absolutely sure is that you will miss opportunities. You will miss important learnings in this environment that could be you know, the solution to, to, to the issues you are, try, you are tackling. The, the only attitude in such a complex environment is to learn. And, and to be able to learn, you have to say you don't know. Yeah, and exactly. That is exactly what happened, Beatrice. And, and I would add that this particular leader, he tuned in even harder to his people and uh, he was brilliant at asking the right questions again that set the team free yes i i, I can i can probably relate to that uh, the job in which i am today is very different and the culture is very different but in my previous job where clearly a cultural shift an important cultural shift was required it, it was an area i'd never managed a, an energy retail business i had knowledge about uh, energy. I had uh, some knowledge about retail, but I had not managed a business of that scale. And I probably spent uh, a year and a half. First, I was determined to to make a change and I'd signaled it in the the first budget I I did. But what what I did for a year and a half was asking questions. And where initially people were very uh, diligent to answer my questions, but I could see, you know, that I was, my questions ended up casting doubt in their answers. And after a year and a half, what happened is that they realized that first, we had been ambitious in our budget and we were going to deliver that budget and they didn't didn't believe it was possible. So they they, they realized there were possibilities that they had not seen. And at the same time, with all the questions I was asking, I was not the the only one to ask questions, but I was asking a lot of questions. They realized that there were things they didn't know or their knowledge was not sufficient anymore. And what, what happened is that they put their jobs on the table and they told me, we're going to reorganize the, the business. And that was a really defining moment in this adventure because then that was really the start of the team, actually. And it was a very diverse team in terms of diversity of thinking. And my job from that point onwards uh, was to focus on making the team work together. And it was not easy because all those leaders were very different. They have very different qualities, very different competencies, very different viewpoints. 
And making a team, you know, collaborate when there is such diversity is not easy, but that's the reason why we have succeeded in the end. It's because the team managed to work together and, and, and they did a fantastic job of turning around the business. Yeah, and what, what you're describing is the focus on the how and getting that team to work together and ultimately the whole organisation to be thinking about those questions that you're asking was more important than the what. What is it that we're trying to achieve? Because conventionally in our minds, we want things to be clear. You know, just tell me what you want me to do, Beatrice, and I'll do it so that I can deliver on the right things. And, and it's, so it's much more ambiguous. Yeah, it's, it's very reassuring to have a strategy that focuses on the what. It's very empowering that you have a strategy that focuses on the how. And uh, once you've made that shift, the what keeps on coming. People will keep on coming with what to do. And, and the, the answers are the right ones. But they may change from, you know, uh, one moment to the next. The, the, the what may be different. And, and that's also probably linked to the, the environment we, we all live in. You know, all this digitization of interactions with customers means that you have a lot of innovation happening for customers in the, in the, the space of uh, the experience that retailers give to their customers. And uh, customers, if they like it, they will adopt the, 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 the solution uh, the, the immediately. Adoption is immediate. Adaptation is not immediate. When you are providing the service and your competitor you know, provides something that customers suddenly love, they will love it from overnight. They will be, become addicted to the new service, but you as a retailer, you can't provide it necessarily <laughs> overnight. So you, you have this struggle between adoption and adaptation. And, and if you want to be agile and to, to develop as fast as you can and preempt customers' expectations, you have to be focused on the how and not on the what, because otherwise you can spend a lot of time developing a product that you think is the right one for the customer. And, and three or six months later, when you deliver it, it's no longer the right one. And you keep on, on playing catch up. So if you're focused on the how and always develop in an agile manner, try to always preempt uh, customers' uh, expectations, that's, that's when you can get it right. Uh, so actually, the, the how is the culture, is, is in part the culture. And it really is, is uh, instrumental for, for the performance of the, the business. Yeah, I mean, Beatrice, from my point of view, I think what you're describing is fundamental, you know, as we all adapt to this disruptive world or adapting, you know, it's, and I think it's quite extraordinary. In a previous episode, we've talked about the shift from being limited in possibility to unlimited in our sense of possibility. And I think what you're describing as well are a number of paradoxes that you're having to hold as a leader. You know, how, how do I be agile, but also create scale? But that is what takes us, those questions, the quality of those questions, which some leaders would stay away from because we don't know the answers and they're too complex. Yes, yes, you're, you're right to point out the, the ambiguity of uh, the, the role of a leader. We talked about innovation versus you know, optimizing processes. And, and what you point out is also, the, I think for me, the, the paradox between being patient or being impatient. <laughs> and, and, and you have to be impatient when you're trying to deliver something to a customer. You, ha you have to be impatient. You have to deliver it fast because customers want it fast. But you, at the same time, 
you have to have the patience to transform your business. And, and that takes time. So we go back to the adaptation of your business, the underlying adaptation. So again, if I, if I refer to the, the, the energy retail business, you have a lot of jobs that may not exist in five or 10 years time. What are you going to do with your people? So do, do you create a, a separate business that takes over, you know, from, from the old one? And at some point you write, you write off the old one. That, that's not what I, I did because I believe that first we have a duty when we manage such large businesses to transform them and to, to help people, you know, find their new spots. A lot of these the people working who may not have uh, the, their jobs may, may disappear in five or 10 years time. They're young people and, and they have to adapt also to the, uh, to the new context. So you have to invest in training and we go back to the expertise. What is their expertise and how is exper- this expertise? expertise relevant in the world of tomorrow. And that's what you have to work on with them. And what do they need? What additional skills do they need to be able to be relevant tomorrow? So that, that's, that takes a bit more time. But, but when, when you manage to do that, when you manage to transform the old business, then the rewards are, are much greater than if you just try to, to set up a new business with new people. Because then you, you have the best of uh, leveraging the um, the knowledge, the uh, the deep understanding of uh, the industry, together with benefiting from the new technologies, new ways of thinking, and and uh, the agility that is required to tackle the, the new world. I love the what you're bringing to life for me, Beatrice, is the power of the and. You, know, you mentioned patience and impatience, but also we need to deliver now because consumers won't have that patience, but I'm also developing the the muscles in my people for what the world might be in five years' time. And just that power, you're standing in all of those those commitments. Uh, I know that you're also committed to diversity, Beatrice. Uh, diversity plays a huge success, um, of course, in, in a company. But um, what's, what is your view of diversity and why it's important in being a learning organisation? So that diversity for me, it's very important that leaders take ownership of the diversity agenda because diversity can just be seen as a trend or as a corporate tick the box exercise. The, the, the way I view it is a critical enabler of performance. If, if you go back to what is necessary to organize the questioning, the diversity of thoughts coming from different angles, if you have only people who are like-minded around the table, you will never make those discoveries that you need to make to, to take the business forward. So, so around, the, around the table, you need to have diversity of thoughts. Diversity is tackled a lot through uh, de- gender diversity. Uh, gender diversity is the most visible form of diversity because diversity of thoughts is not visible, much less visible in general. So, so, so it's interesting because it's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and probably if you don't have a diversity of gender in your organization, do you, you may not have diversity of thoughts. But the ultimate goal is diversity of thoughts. And how do you, you know, as you look at your team or your your the whole area that you're responsible for how do you ensure that diversity of thought is intentionally happening because as you say gender diversity is something we can commit to support and measure to some degree but how do you measure or make sure that diversity of thought is happening in the world of today nobody can be everything it's too complex far too complicated but as a team you can be everything and and once you've understood that 
that should drive the way you recruit your collaborators. I think you need to be a bit deliberate in your HR policies to ensure that you have a diverse pool of candidates. You, you're not recruiting a diverse diverse candidates for the sake of it, but you, if you have a diverse pool of candidates, you, have, you are more likely to have, in the end, diverse workforce. So you, you can force some of these things. I think it's an obligation of means rather than results. You can't force diversity to go into your business. But in terms of the means, you can also think about how you write your job ads because it will attract certain types of candidates or not. So you really have to put some efforts into thinking about how you present yourself to uh, the external world and how you uh, generate this, this attraction for, for people who are not all uh, possibly online, not like-minded. Then you have to let the recruitment process uh, do, do its job. And I think if you lead the, the change, cultural change from the inside at some point, you create this influx. Of if, and if you have ensured that you have diverse pools of candidates, at, the, at, at some point you get a much more diverse uh, workforce. It's very difficult to measure. That's the answer. <laughs> it, it is. But I, when my experience of when we worked with you, uh, Beatrice, is uh, there was a freedom to challenge assumptions in the organization. There, there was a freedom. And, and learning leaders will take that less as a challenge to themselves because they're not being challenged it it might be some thinking that is how do you cultivate that it's expected of leaders to to challenge assumptions or to be challenged how do you cultivate that so that the mavericks the crazy ideas that you said earlier that they're allowed to uh, flourish and have airtime i think you need to have a, a safe space for people to give their ideas uh, so taking people away and, and brainstorming on ideas is a, is a good idea away from the office environment. Uh, you, you have to cultivate it as, as, as a manager. What I used, actually, I used Achieve Breakthrough. Can I, can I say that? <laughs> so I, I used Achieve Breakthrough to, to help, you know, be, be, be a sounding board. You can use external parties to give you a mirror of what you are and what you do because it's always for everybody, it's difficult to look at yourself in the mirror and see what there is to see. Uh, you may just see what you want to see. So, so it's it's really this constant quest to not be satisfied by the status quo and seeking, you know, the feedback from your team if you have if you have created that safe space and and you you have honest conversations with them. They, pro they can provide feedback, but you can also get the feedback uh, much more organized. You know, that, uh, what, what I've been through with my team in, in the previous job was ups and downs, where at some point, you know, the, the team was functioning very well at, at other times when it was very difficult. We had to unblock uh, the situations, and that's where third parties can help unblock uh, discussions and identify what are the blockages and remove them. So, so you, you need the feedback. You, you have first yourself to, to be ready to accept that feedback, and then you have to seek it very proactively. Because it's very easy to be taken by the day-to-day -day, uh, job and sometimes forget to, have those, to take the time to have those discussions with your, with your uh, collaborators. And I think the other important thing that you're making me think about um, when we talk about this, and it's a little bit back to the gender diversity, but what you're describing actually is how is the female strength and contribution in leadership. And I, I don't actually mean gender, I don't think, because I think there are males that bring that female 
you know, it's just a, it's just a descriptor for that type of contribution, creating those safe spaces and and environments for people. How important do you feel, you know, female leadership, getting that diversity is, particularly in this industry that you're in? Because I know it's a challenge. Yes, so so that there is a, a, a real challenge, uh, that's true, uh, of uh, attracting women to uh, more technical jobs or STEM, STEM job, jobs with STEM content. It exists really. It's, uh, it exists across the energy industry because energy is quite technical. So you have a lot more men. So for for this, I think we, um, as as a large uh, corporate, we we have to do our share to uh, influence choices. And choices from from girls are made at a very early age, uh, very young age, around maybe twelve, thirteen, when they, they choose their GCSE topics. Uh, that's where the first choices are made, and then they drive probably the next choices for the A levels and, and, and next. So we we have to put in the effort to provide um, insights into what it is to do a technical job. If I draw on my own experience, what were, what was probably lacking the most in my generation was role models, and and one of the problems of role models is that you you never think of yourself as a role model. But it's important that you, you go and share your experience. And maybe you don't want to call it a role model, but it's important to share, to talk to girls and, and provide some examples of what uh, you have enjoyed in your, in, in your career. And, and, and if it connects with them, then maybe they are more likely to make choices that, are, that takes them towards jobs that are very much male-dominated at the moment. There, there is a massive shortage of resources. Uh, we can see that in uh, the data science in digital technologies because those technologies are booming and it would be great to attract more girls into those topics. So I think as a large corporate, we have to do our share. And is that something you've been involved with firsthand, going to schools and talking to people? So we have have a collaboration with a charity that does exactly that. EDF Energy also have done a lot in that uh, space and, and yes, we, we try, COVID has probably suspended some of these activities, unfortunately, but we hope they can resume again. Uh, but yes, we, we have to do it. We have to do it. And I, I do it for the schools of my, I've got two girls. I'm trying also to do it uh, uh, with their schools when I, when I can. And are they aspiring uh, into the same career and industry as yourself? Uh, it's not quite clear yet. <laughs> One of them has such a wide range of topics. She's very um, math-oriented, but she's also taken uh, computing, uh, computer science, and food and nutrition, and art for a GCSE, and Mandarin. So don't ask me where this this will take her. Wow. (laughs) I do remember when um, a few years ago, when uh, I was spending a lot of time with EDF, and I remember going into my daughter's schools and seeing some wonderful EDF posters, actually, that was encouraging that interest in the world. And and, and I thought it was just fantastic to see that. There is a question that we ask all our guests, um, uh, and it's what breakthroughs do you know of currently that are not your own uh, in the world about a person maybe or a business or a non-profit that are giving you excitement or hope at the moment? So, so I'm, I just recently met with um, a very remarkable lady called Sarah Collins, uh, who is the inventor of an, an innovation called the Wonder Bag. 
and it, it's it's a bag uh, that uh, you can use to cook food. So you you bring your food to the boil, and then you put it in the bag, and you you leave it for depending on the recipe you are making for some hours, and you don't have to worry about it. And this lady uh, has invented the wonder bag and has been relentlessly working to disseminate it in communities where typically in some African communities where women spend a lot of time picking up wood to cook and then cooking and they don't have time to do anything else. And uh, and this innovation has, uh, is enabling them to uh, do something else with their time. They don't have to go and pick up so much wood. It reduces carbon emissions. And, and it, it, it empowers those women who can now maybe choose to get educated or do some other things with their time. So I, I found that it really uh, resonated with me because uh, it's an innovation that is changing the way people live. It is change, it's a life-changing innovation for uh, many, many women. It's also connected with, you know, reduction in uh, carbon emissions. So I think it, 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 it's a very um, wonderful project led by, by this lady. And uh, we are supporting her through my current, uh, my current job to, uh, to help her um, invest in, in the Wonder Bags and distribute them. Uh, so so this, is, this is someone who strikes me as uh, making a, a, a big change in many, many uh, lives. And this is very tangible. That's wonderful. It's called the Wonder Bag. So we'll put the, uh, a link to that in the show notes if anyone wants to find out more about it. That sounds awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And actually, Beatrice, that is something we haven't explored in this podcast is the decarbonisation. You know, EDF are a leading organisation to help Britain become net zero because it definitely takes us into this area, doesn't it, of the unknown and having to lead the way, navigate in the unknown, just embellishes really the whole being the learner aspect and, and not knowing the answers. Yes, so EDF are, are a leader in um, low carbon energy uh, and, and they do that in many different ways. They invest into clean generation like nuclear generation or renewables generation but they also invest in customers and how to bring uh, energy, clean energy to, to customers, including enabling customers to access uh, solar panels, for example, or control their energy and understand how to maybe reduce that, their consumption because the best savings of carbon is not, not to reduce the content of uh, the, con- the carbon content of generation is first to consume less. So that there is a big, um, big effort that uh, big investments that are made by, by the group into making this energy transition happen. We don't know what the mix of the future will be. Uh, and we are exploring, we are discovering, and we are bringing innovations to, to the market to make it happen. Great conversation with Beatrice, hearing her really practical experience and really struck by how grounded Beatrice is in the shift Noah to curiously learning. This will be so applicable to all people in all industries. We're all facing the complexities and unprecedented changes and disruption. The energy market especially is right there at the moment. 
And I really felt that Beatrice talked about the focus on culture with such clarity. I mean, we it's long been known that culture eats strategy for breakfast, but how she really brought alive it, how it must be a priority for leaders. And this shift from Noah to curiously learning is at the very heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think on the surface, though, most people would appreciate they don't and can't have all the answers to drive success in today's climate. Whether it's solutions to new problems we haven't encountered before, customer demands that don't exist yet, or the speed we need to move and adapt. But don't you think the more difficult thing is, as Beatrice said, is truly to question what you know? Consider that everything that got you to where you are now may now not be sufficient. This really reminds me of the, um, the article with Gary Kasparov, the Russian chess grandmaster. And he held the championship title for, I think, about 15 years. So I think he was a pretty good player. And it's reported that he played very uniquely and creatively. And it was brought alive in an interview where he was asked, which was the hardest of those championship titles that you won? And he said it wasn't the first because nobody knew him. He was the new kid on the block. And so they didn't know what he was doing when he won. And it wasn't the second because his opponents had just considered that to have been a fluke or they couldn't just work it out. But it was the third and the fourth of his championships, which were the toughest because he had to unlearn everything he knew and had to relearn how to play chess because they'd wised up to his strategy. And there is a fine line between experience and baggage. This redefines leadership so clearly for me. It isn't only the leaders that have the greatest experience and expertise that can lead, yet this credibility is the career path of so many. But leaders can emerge from anywhere with vision and courage to bring great people together and the right experts and hold people in the right questions, the difficult questions, the paradoxical questions of how we can achieve it all. The simplest example of a paradoxical question I can think of at the moment is the age-old conundrum of what do we want, either cost or quality? You know, where is the compromise? More often now, there isn't a compromise anymore. We do need both. We need healthy food for our growing population, but we can't harm the environment doing so or have high prices We have digitalisation, but we need to keep employment high and take care of our communities. It's these questions that leaders at all levels are having to organise themselves around. So there are three winning moves that we want to bring out today that is what we think is at the heart of this shift. Firstly, winning move number one, overcome the fact that you don't know everything. So you can authentically engage with others, different points of view and learn, asking a lot of questions. So what we're really saying here is that this has to start with us personally. And Noah believes that others need to change or I need to convert someone to my view. Whereas someone who's curiously learning is saying, I'm open to change my doing, the predictable actions that I take. I'm open to changing my way of thinking, even though I have proven success. And ultimately, I'm open to understand how I am occurring to others and whether I have blind spots. And is this helping them to be curious learners? Wayne, someone I was coaching a number of years ago, they were going through some really significant challenges at work. They didn't realise that who they were being in the team was closing everything down, closing possibilities down, suggestions of benefits, ideals people had to work differently. They had decided unconsciously that this change was a threat and not good for the future. 
They were in protector mode, fiercely maintaining the status quo, if you like. He had decided, as I said, unknowingly, without exploration with others. Interestingly, his teammates knew he would respond this way. They were anticipating it. He's always like that. In one of the one-to-ones, we were looking into this a bit deeper um, about what he was really afraid of. Through several experiences he had had, not particularly harrowing, he had honed this unconscious way of listening to change as risky. What is the risk to me was this common question he asked himself. We uncovered that that's where he was listening from and referencing everything from, not only in this instance, but in many things, his career, work and even family and children. And in examining it further, bringing the conclusions and assumptions closer to the facts, the risks actually weren't as threatening as he first thought. This created a freedom from something that was constraining him And he could then create new ways of being, sourced from a future he wanted, his commitments and ambitions, opening up to exploring and learning more from his colleagues. And Beatrice shared her experience about starting in a new role and asking a lot of questions and not always being able to answer questions from others. And the permission and relief a leader can give others through saying, I don't know, really does have the opposite effect than the knower thinks it might have. This doesn't necessarily mean that people lose faith in their leader for not having the answers, but instead actually feel valued and feel empowered by the fact that they're needed and have a contribution they can make. Failure in this instance will be tolerated because it's about stepping up and working it out together. I couldn't agree more, Wayne. And this has to be authentic though, doesn't it? As inconsistent behaviours from the leader can undermine this dramatically fast. This, I think, defines the real challenge. Can I be a leader that doesn't have the answers and isn't concerned about whether they will look credible in front of others? Are you more concerned with looking good, getting the acknowledgement, being the hero that saves the day, or simply just making sure you are a somebody? At some level, we are all concerned with these things. Nobody I've ever met doesn't want to make some difference in their lives. But our ability to achieve this is no longer through the methods of knowing. Being great experts, to the most part, is insufficient to be successful, given the needs of today. I think the challenge is to be able to rewrite the narrative of who we are, our identity, what our values are, and the impact we want to have in the greater big picture. All of this bigger than one's ego to fulfil ourselves. This is a later podcast and we'll come on to this one. And the other ways of cultivating this is in both our, our way of listening, what do you listen for, and our way of speaking. So how we create safety for ourselves and others to explore the questions we ask. We have all honed a way of listening that works for us. So if I listen for the big picture, I know I'll be able to make this work. Or if I listen for what's needed, I know I can focus on the right solution quickly. But we've also honed other ways of listening that limit curiosity, such as, is this something I know how to do? Or, as you said, Sarah, is this risky to me? Or do I agree or disagree? Has this been done before? And if so, this kind of listening can diminish curiosity in who we are being. And you can increase your awareness of what you're commonly listening for by noticing what question is in your mind during a a typical presentation or conversation you're in or meetings. 
what you write down as notes and what you choose to contribute in the conversations. You can reduce your knowingness and increase your learner mindset through purely becoming aware of what you're listening for. The other aspect within your gift is your speaking. Choosing your language and specific words can make big shifts in how you show up in other people's minds as authentically wanting to learn. Expressing fixed opinions, judgments, shoulds, what is right, what is wrong, this is bad, etc. displays a knower mindset. Yet expressing vision, possibilities and using words and phrases such as, I have a proposal, can I make an offer? My invitation is, can I share a possibility? Can we consider? Or simply just being more factual are all words that allow others to be more empowered and open up genuine room for different points of view. Trying out these new phrases and words can feel inauthentic at first, for sure, and also can be seen that way from others, but could lead to changes in our own thinking when new ideas are coming when you didn't expect it. In a team environment, Beatrice talked about setting the direction or tone very clearly, the how we will work, not necessarily the what, so how we will approach this ambition or job that we've got to do, and created a trusted space, not knowing the answers and no time for feeding the ego. And as we said, she lived it personally, but made sure the organisation focused on this too. So that's the first point, overcoming the need to know everything. The second point we want to make it's the importance of asking questions, the difficult questions, not just to find the answers, new solutions, but to create a culture of learners, expand the minds of people around us, taking people with us on this challenging journey. It's not until those questions are asked that people start looking broader than what they already know and see that you are serious about solving the big challenges. I remember Beatrice saying that this began with one team with an ambitious budget. Normally, that budget would have been adjusted two or three months into the year. And the team knew this. This was normal, conventional practice, the status quo, if you like. When there was a realisation that we weren't going to do that this year, we were going to do what we said we were going to do and meet that budget. But she didn't know the answers either. The real challenge and transformation of that division began. That team pulled together like never before, knowing they needed each other to solve it. This truly did set the new, how are we going to be successful for that team? This highlights the need for us, those of us listening to unleash our ambition, to make sure there is space for those exploratory conversations. These often don't come in timetabled fashions, but they emerge when we least expect it when diverse people don't feel pressured or focused on operational matters about the objectives in front of them. We often are working with teams to hold that space for possibility, thinking and reflecting, to inquire into what is our ambition? What is the thinking, the habits, the ingrained assumptions we have applied or even inherited that don't allow these possibilities or opportunities to even breathe, let alone get off the ground? And these inquiries are vital for leaders who want or need to transform results. These are not free-for-alls or spending lots of aimless time waiting for something to emerge. The leader's role is to set the vision or to let the vision emerge from the people and then set the discipline boundaries to organise the team around the right and difficult questions 
and then focus on the environment of safety, openness and trust, normally through leading by example and demonstrating their own vulnerability in the I don't know and I don't have all the answers. So the second point, to summarise, the importance of asking the difficult questions, setting those difficult questions for others and getting out of our comfort zones, Wayne. The third winning move at the heart of this shift is the need to surround yourself with diverse people, people who do not think like you. It is so common for leaders to realise they have been hiring people just like them and often because it makes life easier, they're easier to work with and validate our own thinking and perhaps what we already know. I think thankfully there is a growing focus on diversity and inclusion today in our organisations and yet clearly still a long way to go. But its value is being recognised beyond token measures and Beatrice spoke about the goal being a diversity of thought which is harder to see and ensure beyond gender. And the opportunities and answers to these challenging questions we all now have have a much greater chance of success with those diverse thoughts and ideas which come from people challenging the existing knowledge and logic within the organisation. This is not necessarily the easy path for just getting things done, but we are way past this if we want to be successful. Spaces, forums, agenda slots where possibility can be explored, feedback can be proactively sought and the difficult questions raised with diverse groups of people and thought are essential, as we've already said. So some takeaway actions for you to consider this week. Number one, notice your habits. Do you close things down? Do you find new possibilities? Do you believe you've got the right way? What do you listen for as a habit in conversations? That little voice in your head, there'll always be a common one for you. And to get to this, you could ask five trusted people who aren't afraid to speak the truth to you. Do I show up as a knower and a learner and in what spaces? The second takeaway, challenge yourself. Does that way of listening serve your future commitments? Does that way of being progress them. Maybe you can challenge yourself about what you're afraid of. What is actually the risk here for me in this change? Yeah, that's a good one. The third takeaway is take some action. Change your action. Do something different. Tell people you don't have the answers. (laughs) Ask more questions of others and see what happens. The fourth takeaway is what are the challenging questions you need to ask of yourself and the people around you? Perhaps you have dismissed these questions in the past, written them off as impossible. Can you start a conversation with others about these? And a quote to end this week's episode from Einstein. The important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existence. One cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life and of the marvellous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery each day. Or as Plutarch said, as we said at the beginning, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. So come on, Sarah, let's go and start a campfire. As long as you acknowledge that I bring the best sticks, Wayne. (laughs) So thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we hope that what we've discussed here starts you thinking about unleashing your own ambitions. And we'd love to hear your stories, those personal aha moments and reflections, as well as answer your questions. To do this, email us at ambition at achievebreakthrough.com and if you can, please give us a five-star review to help others, perhaps someone with a big unrealised ambition to find us. And we're looking forward to the next episode where we'll explore the natural tension we all hold as humans between staying safe and striving to act in line with our higher purpose. 
For more information on this episode, there is a link in the show notes and to our website. Don't forget to press follow to catch future episodes. See you next time.